Welcome to the 966. This is a podcast and show that focuses on all things Saudi Arabia and beyond from the two guys who produce the most widely read daily email newsletter on the kingdom since 2009. Today we'll be talking about Jake Sullivan's visit to Saudi Arabia, the highest ranking Biden official uh, to do so to date, uh, the future of OPEC and oil in the global energy transition, and Lucid Air's new car reviewed. Um, but first, uh, Richard, what's your one big thing for this week? The visit, um, Jake Sullivan's visit, I guess Brett McGurk, who's a White House coordinator for Middle East, North Africa, and Tim Landerkin, who's a special envoy on Yemen, went to Saudi, um, met with Mohammed um, bin Salman, the Crown Prince, Khalid bin Salman, other advisors, top advisors. Uh, first First interaction, really, you know, as, as specific representatives of the Biden administration, which is important. And um, and as we talked previously, it's it's uh, through regular processes and regular channels, which, again, I think reinforces the the whole patterns and the, and the, the way the relationship's going to go. Uh, I would, thought it was notable. <laughs> there wasn't much that came out of this on the reporting on it. You, I mean, uh, what did we see? We saw that they talked about Yemen. And uh, supposedly they talked about oil prices. Um, I'm sure it was it was you know, predetermined, and they had a good discussion on a number of topics. Um, but it's good that they're talking. It's good the connection is made. It's uh, the process is uh, the process is underway, which I'm encouraged by. Yeah, it's really interesting. After these meetings of high level officials, really not just from the U.S. but from anywhere, the Saudi press agency, which is the official like sort of press arm of the government puts out a photo, usually of the crown prince or whatever high-ranking Saudi official it is, meeting with their counterpart. And if it weren't for U.S. media reports of this, there would have been no evidence of such a meeting. Jake Sullivan went in and out, and there was no typical handshake photo in front, <laughs> which is something you and I always look for um, as we comb the SPA. So it was interesting that that was absent. Um, but it's encouraging that they did talk about oil prices. They talked about Yemen. Um, it's, you know, sometimes the fact that there isn't a, a, an official photo or like a big rollout like the Saudis did for President Trump um, when he made it, uh, Saudi Arabia his first foreign visit. So it's just it's interesting when, uh, you know, silence speaks volume and volumes in, in this case. So um, that's that that is that is interesting. Mine is my big thing this week is um, Saudi Arabia is going to be hosting a contemporary art biennale, the first art event of its kind to be held in the kingdom. Um, and it announced uh, participating artists uh, for the exhibit. I think this is going to be really cool. It's like just a bunch of modern art sculptures and exhibitions in uh, just outside of Riyadh um, in the Jacks district. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um but it's 20,000 square meters. Um, it'll be a three-month-long event. And these are internationally famous contemporary artists. It's just a really interesting juxtaposition because you don't really think of Saudi Arabia as like the home of contemporary art in any way. Um, and so I, I imagine that's going to be really interesting for Saudis, whoever is actually visiting as well, to see. Um, please. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Um, no. Yeah, this... Um 
I'll let you pronounce that. I'm not going to try. Biennale. Biennale. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I may be botching it too, but you know. <laughs> well, you're on your own. I'll let you. I'm not behind. I'm not behind you on that one. Uh, but um, absolutely, I, I, you know, Saudi Arabia is going. I guess they they established a ministry of culture three years ago. Uh, it's a big. It's a one of the pillars. Um, of their vision 2030 trying to to promote their culture i've been really pleased the the art in the red sea you know art uh exhibits and their their festivals uh, i've been really pleased also in terms of the culture side how much they focused on uh some of their historical things uh previously uh, there was a time in saudi arabia where there was very little interest in discussing or, or investigating or or even looking closely at pre-Islamic times. And Saudi Arabia is a fascinating place, you know, before Muhammad, uh, before 600, you know, uh, AD. Uh, and they're now working with, with Greece and France and, and Germany and the Max Planck Institute, the recent, you know, findings of the camel drawings and all the stuff they're unearthing uh, that really adds to Saudi Arabia's culture it's uh his history so i i think they're going they're going forward with things like the biennale and uh you got it nailed it which i think is great i think <laughs> and uh also supports their uh their opening up the of the society and the economy and tourism that sort of thing but they're also going backwards and exploring uh their archaeological history and and all the things that that have have gone on in that peninsula, which are extraordinary in terms of the, the the timeline of mankind in general. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because it's like when you when people talk about Vision Twenty Thirty, the first thing that comes up is the economy. I mean, it's an economic overhaul, top to bottom, and the the initiative is to diversify the economy away from oil and energy exports. But the other half of that is life in Saudi Arabia. It's a economic and social reform. So part of that is tourism. And the way you attract tourists is history, archaeological stuff, but also art ex uh, exhibitions like film festivals. It's it's the second half of and the least talked about part of Vision 2030 is art, culture, like quality of life for Saudis and, and residents living there. So things like this don't really get a lot of attention, but it's this would be unheard of about five years ago in Saudi Arabia, a, a, you know, a, a international um, art exhibition. So I think it's really cool. And this um, will include a lot of Saudi artists, too, which, again, they're really promoting. Um, moving on today to our first topic, uh, we're talking about the future of OPEC and oil and the global energy transition. Um, OPEC just released its annual report on long-term energy trends, and the cartel said it expects global oil demand to grow steadily over the next two decades. Uh, by 2045, it predicts its oil, its members' oil will constitute 39% of global crude consumption, up from about 33% now. Um, there were really two great Wall Street Journal articles this week on this subject. Um, another one was um, an interview from OPEC's Secretary General, um, in which he said that uh, consumers should brace for more energy shortages unless the world boosts investment in new oil and gas development. Um, it's the first, uh, as the report says, full-throated response to increasing calls to limit such spending. Um, Richard, talk a little bit about um, what this all means for Saudi Arabia and um, 
how Saudi Arabia is managing this energy transition as de facto leader of OPEC? Uh, well, I think it's a good question. This is really, these were good, good articles. <clears throat> I'm from the Saudi perspective, and as we talked about, it maybe seems a, a cheery outcome by the World Oil Report, you know, by OPEC. But this is a serious organization doing serious research, and it's it's um, been supported by a lot of other findings. Uh, but it's good news for Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is is <clears throat> making a bet; it can thread the needle by maintaining its uh, fossil fuel production and revenues are derived from that while also transitioning to a, a different sort of economy going forward. So this kind of news validates a lot of what they're doing. Now, there's a little bit of cynicism here uh, in the sense that um, international oil companies like, or national oil companies like Aramco um, don't endure the same sort of pressure that uh, Chevron's and Exxon Mobil's and, and a lot of the European and American uh, international oil companies are uh, experiencing right now in terms of of taking serious steps to to promote uh, reduction in their emissions, CO two emissions, and 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 help on the path to uh, combating climate change. So they have a little bit of that advantage, and I think that's baked into this. Um, in that uh, a lot of what, for example, the Secretary General is talking about is his investment. Mm -hmm. And these uh, global oil companies, international oil companies, um, there's considerable uh, uh, argument against these long-term investments in fossil fuels because it doesn't help us meet our climate change numbers. And we have activist board members and there's that kind of pressure. Uh, but it may result in, and this is the point I think this makes, it may result in non-OPEC uh, oil producers uh, percentage of global production lessening and becoming smaller while OPEC becomes larger, uh, all based on the supposition that even with the global energy transition, you're going to have to have fossil fuels, which is, which is borne out, I think. Uh, it's interesting what's going on now in Europe, Western Europe. You know, you've got um, uh, natural gas prices going through the roof for a variety of reasons. There's um, a shortage. It was cold winter 2020, hot summer 2020, mm -hmm. um, Hurricane Ida, the Russians aren't stepping up. Uh, so, and also in, in Europe, apparently the wind hasn't blown for months. So a lot of the solar, a lot of the uh, wind energy uh, is not being produced to help offset the, the prices. So uh, in this particular moment, also in fossil fuels, in terms of how the reliability and availability seem very attractive. Now, again, in the long term, it's problematic if you're looking at it from a climate change perspective. Um, this, so this is, this is, again, if you're a Saudi planner in a star chamber and you're trying to figure out to see the future, this is encouraging news. The Saudis don't deny climate change. Um, they're signatories to the to the Paris Agreement. They slow rolled it like a, a lot of uh, people who are dependent on fossil fuels, and it's understandable. If you're you know if eighty five plus percent of your uh, uh, fiscal revenues come from from oil, over forty percent of your GP is oil based. Uh, you can't just say, oh yeah we need to stop producing oil. You, you have to figure out a way forward. And 
that's what the Saudis are trying to do. Uh, again, they understand climate change. I mean, the median median average, the median temperature in Saudi Arabia is 79 degrees. Mm-hmm. I mean, they know that, especially on both their coasts and Emirates in particular, and that, you know, that these some some areas are going to be inhabitable for months on uh, at a time by the middle of the century. But that doesn't mean they can just, just give up what they're doing. They need right. to find a pathway forward. So this gives them in their minds, probably a little bit of uh, a little bit of time and validation. Like I said, that let's keep doing what we're doing. Let's uh, be smart about it, but let's transition. Another thing, we have a little time to do it. I should add one way Saudi has participated in the in 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 their own minds, and I think otherwise is they they, they promote what's called the circular circular car- carbon economy, um, where. Uh, you know, CO2 is is the uh, reduction of, of uh, output of CO2, capture, these sorts of things. One of the big coups, I think, in the G20 for Saudi Arabia was that that uh, circular carbon economy was agreed upon by the G20 members as a viable contribution to, um, to uh, reducing climate change, reducing emissions that contribute to climate change. So the Saudis feel Saudis are both trying to survive as an economy and a state, and also trying to be somewhat um, constructive as they do it, and as they try and transition. So anyway, I thought this was interesting and encouraging. Yeah, I mean the the report does say that wind and solar will quadruple in terms of overall global energy market share, um, and will meet about ten percent of the world's energy demand by twenty forty five, up from two point five percent currently. So OPEC itself acknowledges this shift. Um, and it's just interesting. There's a, a major summit coming up. It'll be the biggest one since Paris in Glasgow this year. Glasgow. So Glasgow, yeah. So everybody will be um, looking at that and looking at how the tone has changed since Paris and you know since the Trump administration pulled America out of the Paris uh, Climate Change Accord. Um, a lot to look for there. Um, and it's interesting. You and I have talked about solar energy in Saudi Arabia and alternatives. I mean, they have. It's you know. They, uh, Saudi Arabia is the Saudi Arabia of solar energy. They get 3,000 <laughs> hours of sunlight a year. I mean, they have tremendous opportunity in solar, and they are investing in solar. Um, but like you said, it's it's all about timing. You can't just snap your fingers and, and move over to a uh, to solar energy and become a, a power exporter. I mean, it, it, all this stuff takes time. So um, it'll be interesting. And additionally, they, they're... they're Diving, I don't know what diving, is, but they're they're certainly intending to become players in hydrogen, which is a which is um, uh, in certain instances a reasonable substitute for for fossil fuels in terms of transit and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But again, it's extremely expensive now. But if technology and and science can move it along, uh, they'd like to be real players in the hydrogen market. Uh, but you're right; they they're trying to solar for sure they need to get on it they have grand plans they've started to make some headway um but yeah they've got to buy some time to get where they hope to get and and they're going to have to do that by by via fossil fuels and some of these some of these numbers in this report are fascinating i mean the, the opec report said um Earlier this week, the world is projected to require $11.8 trillion in oil and gas investment through 2045. And that's a lot of money. Um, and that, that is coming at the same time that some groups are calling for no more investment at all 
in uh, energy infrastructure. Right. So, so there's a lot of distance in between those two figures. And this is what I mean by the, the, the national oil companies like Saudi Aramco are a little bit insulated from these pressures. They don't, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have shareholders, active shareholders on their board like ExxonMobil, and they don't have, they aren't being sued like Shell um, to, to, to be more climate friendly. I don't think that means they're being irresponsible. It does mean they, they don't have these immediate pressures and they continue to invest in their infrastructure. I mean, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia above anything else has been a responsible uh, uh, a responsible administrator of its natural resources. I mean, you, it's, it's built a first-class, world-class Saudi Aramco uh, oil company uh, it has uh, redundancies, uh, state-of-the-art technology in terms of its production and pipelines, exploration, and everything else. It's built um, excess supply. All these things have taken billions, billions, billions of dollars of investment, and has is representative of really good management. Uh, if you if you, if you want to be compare, you know, look at look at uh, Libya or Venezuela or Iraq. You know, these had these these countries had the same sort of. Um, fossil fuel assets, but Saudi Arabia has managed it quite differently and much, much better. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 fascinating. Um, you can check out this report. We have it on our website at um, sustg.org. Um, actually, sustg.com. Um, but uh, just fascinating stuff. And both of those Wall Street Journal articles we've shared in our daily newsletter as well. Um, just fascinating stuff. Lucid, Lucid has a new car. Lucid Motors um, is a rival of Tesla. Um, they are more than 50% owned by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, um, which increased its stake in 2019. Um, Lucid uh, has been promising for a while a car that rivals Tesla um, and has teased images and videos and a website and everything and has even IPO'd without actually showing anybody a working car that is ready to be produced. And this week, uh, it gave a sneak peek to a handful of journalists in Arizona um, who went to go see the car. And Mashable, a journalist from Mashable, um, wrote a review of the car and said it was it blew them away, frankly, and that it just completely outpaced the Tesla. Um, Lucid is like one of those investments from the PIF that that's like really cool and like very trendy and they put a lot of money into it and it seems to be doing well um can uh, richard i guess this is a a broad question you might not be able to answer but uh can uh (laughs) can the lucid compete with uh with tesla over time and then also if you could talk a little bit about what it would mean for saudi arabia to, to produce lucid uh cars in the kingdom which is uh on the docket well first of all we have to admit to a I mean, I lust after this car. Mm-hmm. Me too. It looks awesome. And, and my daughter would just, you know, I sent her off to college in an O2 Acura because I didn't want to buy into this used car market this summer because it was overpriced. And here I am lusting after a $180,000 car. That's it? $180,000? It's $180,000. You know, that's before they go to the other one, which is, I think is is eighty. You know, they, they're starting at the top end of the market, just like Tesla did. Um, and... Uh, no, you know, we just talked about uh, talked about Saudi Arabia trying to bridge from fossil fuels to the, it's the next economy, and a significant percentage, a significant number of, of public investment fund investments 
are based on technologies, fourth generation technologies, um, fourth industrial re revolution technologies, but also EV. So, so they got in on, te on, uh, on Lucid in 2018, <clears throat> uh, Lucid just last year, so early this year or late last year. Uh, was did a SPAC, special acquisitions company, the Churchill Group, um, which Saudi Arabia was a significant part, part of that. So they, as you said, I think own like 60% of it now. Um, and it's valued, I think, at $24 billion. I mean, that's going to go down after people have, uh, you know, have sell their, uh, you know, their, their, their time they have to hold is fast. But anyway, they're, um, they're building a book here. Uh, it's fascinating. I think the... Peter Rawlinson is the guy who used to work for your man, Elon, mm -hmm. and um, and started AIR, uh, says he expects to do a factory in Saudi Arabia. Um, that's always a hope, uh, but, you know, does Saudi have a, the, the employee, uh, employees and the, and the expertise to do that? Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe this is where it starts. So uh, it's fascinating from Saudi Arabia's perspective. Whether it can compete, uh, Tesla's sort of done a, uh, uh, a roadmap on how to do it. Um, everything I understand is Lucid is a little less haphazard than uh, Tesla in terms of its uh, production line and, and that sort of thing. And certainly Lucid doesn't have the same sort of uh, charismatic um, leader as Elon Musk. But I mean, there's a roadmap there for it to do it. There's the the pre-orders for the air lucid air are massively oversubscribed it looks like an amazing car this is the second or third report from from journalists who have driven it and gone oh my goodness it's like driving a spaceship but the range uh, is insane it's it's over yeah. 500 miles i mean there are 13,000 pre-orders for the $160,000 model so that's pretty yeah, good i think how many are they making <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't i don't think they're making 13,000 <laughs> so it's you know, it, so, you know, people won't be getting that until 2024, but maybe, I don't know, maybe they can get through it. But it's uh, it's an interesting investment by Saudi Arabia, and I think shows some insight. And they certainly, you know, they're, you know, public investment fund has any number of mandates. One of them is to make money. So they'll make money on this. Two is to, to secure and support technology that might be meaningful to Saudi Arabia. And there's a number of other things that should be doing. But most importantly right now is domestic investment internally. But um, this is a this is a cool investment. We love it. It's you know it, it's stylish and it's uh, current and it's uh, futuristic. So it, it's kind of exciting to talk about. It's exciting to see it see some see some get some some uh, airtime. Yeah, it's also really cool to think about how in you know a couple of years, one of the coolest cars in Saudi Arabia will actually be an electric vehicle, and it will be a you know the Lucid Air. The Lucid Dream Air, the Lucid Air Dream Edition. Um, well, but you that again, like everything in Saudi, you want that, you got to go back and put in charging stations all over the country, which don't exist right now. Right, right. So there, there like, are, yeah, everything in Saudi. You know, you you, you here's the goal. Now you got to go back and do forty eight things to get to the goal. Right, right. So uh, just a quote from this that I wanted to read um, from the uh, the review from Mashable. Quote, finally, after years of waiting, a small group of media folks got to actually drive the Dream Edition. Smiles spread across one's skeptical faces. Because of the GT-like handling and torque, yes, but also because so much 
So much thought has gone into the interior experience. Sitting in the roomy back seat, which we also did, seems like something you could happily do for hundreds of miles at a time. And even yeah. while all occupants are over six feet tall, everyone has plenty of legroom. I mean, this is this is a glowing review, the type of review that it seems like the company wrote itself, and yet it isn't. So that's it's just really cool to see. It's also cool to see a rival to Tesla. So that maybe instead of just being the unquestioned industry leader, it drives them to be even more innovative than they've already been over time. So it, it's well, a there's really lots of story. there's yeah, there's lots of things coming up. I mean, and 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 this is again going back to the recent, the earlier one, the fossil fuels we were talking about. I guess Norway, they're talking about. I guess nine out of ten cars sold right now have some sort of EV component, and there's uh, predictions that the last gas powered a vehicle in Norway will be will be sold in April 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great for Europe. Uh, Europe's way ahead of you know Norway's way ahead of the rest of the world. Uh, the rest of the world's not going to catch up. But Saudi Arabia, like we said, is, you know, is trying to is trying to maximize its fossil fuels advantage while also getting a, a hand in on uh, future technologies. Absolutely. Well, we should get one just to you know drive it around a little bit and. <laughs> <laughs> make, yes. it a, make it a, the official car of the 966. Yes, we should do that. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's end it with that. Um, before we go, just want to remind our listeners to subscribe. There's a little subscribe button on Apple, iTunes, uh, Spotify, YouTube. We'll have this podcast up on there. Um, if you can hit subscribe, that actually helps us a lot. Um, and yeah, so we'll be doing this every week. Um, thanks for listening.